0: Psalm 115 tonight. Let's turn there. Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory for the sake of Your steadfast love and Your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold. The work of human hands, they have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord, He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth He has given to the children of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, no, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth uh, and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Well, the last time we met, we looked at a different historical occasion in Psalm 114. And uh, we saw that the psalm was uh, recounting the exodus event in poetic language. And uh, we saw that it was a, uh, a poem not only about the exodus, but as that exodus event is um, realized in Jesus, we could easily apply it then to ourselves and see how poetically God overcomes all our enemies whether it be sin or the devil or any other impediment in our lives keeping us from Him. And so Paul says, nothing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And so Paul mocked all those natural impediments like the sea and the hills and the mountains and, and all these things that stood in the way of God's people coming to their final destination. He says they skipped, they fled, they, they trembled, all these things before the God of Israel. And it's wonderful to think um, uh, that for you and I, that is still going on today. That God has, is taking away all that stands in our way between ourselves and Him. Between Himself and His children. And He will do, move heaven and earth. He will even give His own Son on the cross. So uh, 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 concerned and so determined is God to bring us to Himself. And so we saw that in Psalm 114. It was a different historical occasion than what we are looking at tonight. Even though Psalm 115 is not uh, given a historical period in terms of the the the, um, the writing over it, sometimes you'll find that, won't you, that the psalm is written on a particular occasion. Uh, and so you have to look for inward evidence of that. And many commentators believe that uh, this was written at a time, at least, when the children of Israel were deeply uh, troubled and affected. In fact, those are the exact words of John Calvin, that he said that the psalm was penned when the church was in a state of uh, a deep affliction. And so, um, it, some uh, suspect that given the, the language of uh, oppression, That they they are in trouble of some sort. And the plethora of idols around them, it seems like the occasion might be uh, in Babylon. That they may be in Babylon. And so, because of that, Israel are are now subject to their taunts. Why should the nation say, where is their God? And so, again, looking at the internal evidence of the psalm may give rise to this uh, idea that they are actually in Babylon and under the taunts of a, uh, a, a dominant power. And that was often done, wasn't it? Uh, that that uh, not only were you s- uh, uh, brought as slaves and servants, but you, your gods were mocked. He says, why, why would you serve these gods if they c- couldn't help you? If they couldn't give you what you need? And, uh, and, and so um, you, you found that with in, when the Assyrians showed up in Jerusalem. And uh, uh, they, they said, well, where did all the gods of Egypt and all these other nations get them? Uh, we defeated them. And so their gods are nothing. And now where are your gods? They're not helping you. They're not doing anything for you. Uh, but the psalmist knows he is in a state of difficulty. There's no question. And the community of God's people are in a state of difficulty. But that does not uh, um, lessen his zeal for God. And that is such a lesson for us, isn't it? Here in 2021, uh, when the church is marginalized and it's becoming so more and more, as we stand for truth, as we stand for the, the, the true and living God, we, we uh, uh, wonder... We, uh, the. Uh, Society says, well, where is this God? Uh, and we are, we are uh, again, further marginalized. And uh, so the, the, the psalmist uh, provides an example for us that regardless of where society is going, the church is always to make this bold stand for the truth, to affirm in our hearts and minds. And that was so characteristic of God's people no matter where they were. In the book of Daniel, for example, nothing uh, uh, swayed the minds of Daniel and his friends. And, and again, they're, they're so instructive, those young men, that even though they were about to be thrown into a fiery furnace, they said, we know our God is able to save us. And so, the, these the, uh, conquering powers would be able to say, well, what God can save you from our hand? They, weren't, they didn't for a second doubt that God was able to do it. They didn't doubt His existence. They just said, this is the providence of God. We don't understand it fully, but this is the way it is. And here we are in 2021, and we're called upon to make the same profession. Uh, our churches may not be full. Uh, in fact, the, the uh, fewer and fewer people go to church, and we may feel that the cause of Christ is is struggling or failing in our country and in our province and so on, and yet we are not to be conditioned by that. We're to be conditioned by the Word. We're to be conditioned by what God has said and what God has done. And this is the stand that the psalmist is taking. He knows the truth. He's convinced of the truth, though he's going through a very disorienting, along with the people of God, a very disorienting uh, uh, situation. So he begins not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. In Isaiah, for example, God promised that this is what he would do: that he would save his people, uh, uh, for his own name's sake, for his glory. And it, as they are in this trouble, okay, they're in a they're in a very difficult situation, and they're. Perhaps remembering the prophecies of Isaiah. Remembering the words of Isaiah as to what God would do. uh, That He would save them for His glory's sake. Look at chapter 48 and verse uh, 9-11. to For My name's sake I defer My anger. For the sake of My praise I restrain it for you. That I may not cut you off. And then in verse 11, for My own sake, for My sake... I do it. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will give to another. So here are the people of God, perhaps in a foreign land, but they don't go empty-handed. They go with the prophecies of, of uh, 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 Isaiah, which were written many generations before, a couple of hundred years before. And so they don't go empty handed. And they remember that God is going to save His people for His glory. And so this is what this psalmist is doing. Lord, for Your glory's sake, save Your people. Help them. Undertake for them. Not to us. We don't deserve anything. As the people of God, And Daniel and many of the exiles lump themselves in. He says, we don't deserve any glory. We don't deserve any honor. But for the glory of Your name, O God, do it as You said You would. Not to us, but unto Your name give glory for the sake of Your steadfast love and Your faithfulness. In other words, Lord, we're calling out to You to do for us today what You did in the past. You showed Yourself to be steadfast in Your love and faithfulness. Please do it again. Not unto us, but unto Your name. Give glory. This is the, 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 the desire of all God's people, no matter whether it's in good times or bad times. If you have truly come to understand the cross, well, just as we were seeing this morning, If you truly understand the cross, then forgiveness will not only be natural, it will be a joy to you to forgive people, to extend God's love. That will be your innate desire. Uh, But it it is also in the innate desire of every Christian to cry out, not unto us, not unto us, but to you be the glory. It is Your Son that came and died. You gave Your only begotten Son. He, went, uh, 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 he, he, he uh, entered into death. He was dead and buried. Uh, and He rose again. Single-handedly defeated the powers of darkness. Overcame uh, uh, death and the grave for us. Lord, we didn't do it. We couldn't do it. We were your, not only were we unable, we were Your enemies at the time. So Lord, You get all the glory. And that's God's intention. And He says, why should the nation say, where is their God? You see, again, this is the refrain. This is is what they were saying. Why should the nation say? This was like a chorus. Where is your God? Here are you. You're in prison. Here are you. you're, You're nothing. Or in modern... Uh, situation they might say well you're sick well everything's going wrong for you you just lost your job uh, you know things aren't going very well where is your God you say you want me to believe in your God now look at your life things are things are difficult things are you know where is your God and this is what the, the perhaps the Babylonians or a, another oppressive group were saying to them why should they say it this is what the psalmist is saying He has a heart for God's glory. In Numbers 14 uh, and at verse 13, this was the same uh, situation when the children of Israel were rebelling and God was going to destroy them. And this is what uh, uh, Moses said. Moses said to the Lord, here's Moses interceding for the people, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought this people up in your might from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land that they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of the people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face and your cloud stands over them and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard uh, of your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that He swore to give them and that he, uh, he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, please, let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but will by no means clear the guilty. And then he says in verse 19, Pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. You see how history is continually repeating itself? And this is what he's doing. The psalmist has a good grasp of history. And he's he's engaging with God the way Moses engaged with Him. Why should the nation say, Where is their God? These are Your people. You're covenanted to these people, Lord. Why should they mock You? They would say that the Lord has brought them so far and could not ultimately deliver them. And so he he, pleas, he pleads with God. He, he, he says, Lord, this is the glory of Your name. Your reputation here is on the line. Why should the nation say that Uh, Where is your God? And then he he goes on to rehearse really before the the community of God why it is that God is and that God uh, cares for us and that God is superior to all the gods of the nations whether they're Babylonian or whoever they are. And so he, he goes into this wonderful comparison between... False gods and the true and living God. First, the false gods. He says there, uh, and I'll get back to verse 3 in a moment. Our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. Verse 4, he says, The idols, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, hands but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. It's almost like David going up against Goliath, remember? When the people of Israel were in again a different kind of bondage. They were off on the hill, trembling. They couldn't move. They might as well have been in captivity. They couldn't do anything. And along comes David, a man whose heart is alive unto God. He says, who is this Philistine that he should mock? The armies of the living God. He is the living God. They worshipped stone and wood. The gods of the Philistines. And this is again, the spirit of the psalmist here. Isn't it wonderful? That this is hundreds of years perhaps after King David went up against Goliath. But nevertheless, the spirit of David resides in this psalmist. He says... Lord, why should this state of affairs continue? You are the living God. Their gods are nothing. They're nobodies. They're non-entities. They're just stone and wood. And he, He contrasts them. These are the creation of man. They can't do anything. They can't ultimately save. God made everything, but they themselves are made. God is in heaven, but they are on the earth. God does whatever He wants, but they can do nothing. They have to be lifted from here to there. They're cut out of a piece of wood. And with one part of the wood, they make their dinner, their supper at night. They burn it in a fire. With the other part, they fall down before it and worship it. And it has to be carried from here to here. But our God is the God that carries us on evil's wings. That's what He says to the children of Israel. I bore you on the eagle's wings out of Egypt. I brought you through the sea and the desert and into a land flowing with milk and honey. Not only did Israel acknowledge it, but even the nations acknowledged it. Their God fights for them, they would say. Rahab the prostitute could say, we have heard what your God is doing. Even the enemies of God could not deny that He was the true and living God, that He was giving them the land. And it shot fear into the hearts of the people around. They can do nothing, but God does what He pleases. God sees the distress of His people as the psalmist knows, and He has answered them time and time again. But these... Have mouths, but do not speak. They cannot communicate. They have ears, but cannot hear. They have noses, but cannot smell. Hands, but they do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. Those who make them are like them. This is quite a condemnation. In other words, they are dead and lifeless just like the idols they serve. That there is nothing God-pleasing in them. That they see their life consisting in what they own. They see their life consisting in what they eat or their sensations and they rise no higher than that. This is what was said of Israel when they worshipped false gods. Look at what it says in 2 Kings 17. It says that they went after false idols and became false. In other words, their whole lives were a lie. The gods were a lie. And their lives became a lie. They became like them. Dead. Dead in the things of God. One commentator uh, said that sinners have no spiritual mouths to cry out for His grace or confess His praises. No spiritual senses to experience the beauty of God in Christ. No spiritual hands to offer him worship. No spiritual feet to walk with him in faith and obedience. Isn't this what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2? Yes, people are alive physically. They walk around. They can do all sorts of things. They can make money. They can raise families. They can do all sorts of things. But they're what? Inwardly, spiritually dead. Because they're serving at another altar. And they become like the uh, uh, idols that they serve. They, they don't... The, the, the Bible says they are themselves dead. Dead unto God. No spiritual mouths to cry out. No spiritual hands to uh, offer Him worship. No spiritual feet to walk in faith and obedience. Isn't this what Paul said in Romans 1? Um, And verse 22, look, he says there, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, birds, animals, and reptiles. They served these things. And they became fools. They represented. They became like the ones the things that they served. Dead, powerless, unproductive, non-God glorifying. But the complete opposite is true of those who give themselves to the true and living God. In fact, the passage that Peter read for us in uh, uh, 2 Corinthians tells us as much. He says, this is what happens when we give ourselves over to the true and living God. We become like Him. Just as those who worship false idols become false, their lives become a lie as the the thing that they worship. So we are changed. Look, He says, and we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We are being changed into the truth of the One whom we serve. We're no longer living a lie, as it were. The person who lives for money and pleasure or reputation is living a lie. That's not why they were made. They serve these idols and their lives become empty and vain and worthless because they're not living according to the truth what is the truth I am a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ I live for him now I come to church I I offer up sacrifices of praise to God through Jesus Christ what am I doing I'm living the truth my life is not a lie anymore when I eat my food, I give thanks to the God who gave it. When my children are born, I bring them up in the teaching and admonition of the Lord. I teach them that life is not about money or worldly success, but serving God. That is a truth, a life well lived. You see, friends, that's what it is to worship. The true and living God. You're changed from one degree of glory to another. Look at what Daniel says in chapter 11. He says, the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. (laughs) Just like the God they serve. Just like the God they know. But Daniel says they have to know Him first. They have to believe in Him, just like those three young men. What did they do? Did they carry out great, great exploits because they believed in their God? Of course they did. They were thrown into the fiery furnace and the fire did not touch them, did not scorch them. There was not even a smell of smoke on them. They reflected the glory of the God who saved them. They did great exploits. The righteous are as bold as lions. And we, we discovered something of that when we looked at Psalms 111 and 112. Why is the man who fears the Lord so great? He doesn't worry when bad times come. He's generous with what he has. He shows love to his fellow man. Where does he get that? From gazing upon the true and living God. He becomes like Him. The more He serves Him and worships Him and prays to Him and, and builds His life around Him and revolves around Him, He becomes like Him. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Riches and wealth are in His house and His righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. These are things that our world needs. These are things that we, God desires to see in us. But how do you get that? By pursuing a life of more money, better career, bigger house? Guarding your reputation at every turn so everybody thinks the best of you all the time? No. No. Certainly not by bowing to the gods of technology. But no, he says it's because he fears the Lord. He looks at Him. He gazes upon Him and He's transformed by Him. And so Paul says in Colossians, put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its Creator. Being renewed in the knowledge after it's created. We're becoming more like God. But the psalmist here is mocking the gods of the nations. They can do nothing of, of the sort. You see, it becomes important for us to see. You, see, you, you say, well, okay, I don't serve these stone images and these wood idols and things like that we're in 2021 we don't have that i go to a christian church but the bible makes abundantly clear that we can make these idols in our own lives we look to our phones or netflix or whatever to give us ultimate pleasure we look to uh, uh our, our clicks on facebook to give us ultimate worth did p- how many people liked my posts Uh, How many followers do I have on Twitter? A lot of people will go down that road and find their value in these things. To the point where psychologists are saying all the time that technology is making people depressed, especially young people. It's making them question their worth. Why? Because they're bowing to an idol that doesn't give anything back. And they become as dead and empty as the gods they serve. And we read articles on these things and we, we, we scoff and we laugh and so on, but we, we have to take them seriously because it's true. When we look to these things to give us satisfaction or release or purpose or value, we're bowing at the wrong altar. We are being shaped by these things. One book recently in the last number of years say how, how your cell phone is changing you. And there's been many studies done and many Christians have written on the subject. But there he compares the, 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 the gods of this world and the gods of the nations, the gods that may, they may be surrounded with at that very moment, the Babylonian gods or whatever nation is mocking them and subjecting them to this torment. He says, they're nothing. But our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Of course this God can't be seen. They're saying, where is your God? And this was the, the taunt of God, the Israelites and even the early Christians. He says, look, we've got gods over here and on this statue and on this wall. Where is your God? Of course, the people of God would say God is invisible. He is a spirit. He can't be seen. He can't be touched. That doesn't take away from His glory, but it accentuates His glory. Because He's he's in every place at once. He cannot be defined by any kind of shape or anything like that. By any kind of image. He blows away all the categories of human imagination. That's how glorious our God is. But you people... You nations, you shape your God into the face of a a wolf or a cow or a bull or a bird. And you fall down and worship it. What kind of God is that? Our God is the God who made the heavens and the earth. He cannot be confined. He transcends the imagination. He is the giver of all life. And so the, the psalmist celebrates while he, he mocks the, the idols of the nations. And as we look seriously at the idols of our own world, he also doesn't leave it there. He, he shows on the other side the attractiveness of the God to whom He is now calling. He says there in, Psalm one, in, in verse 1, for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, that God is loving, that God has dealt in love with his people, of course, that is highlighted for us in john's great verse, for God so loved the world and his faithfulness that God is faithful in spite of the the long silences that we may feel, isn't it? It should be encouraging to us that the people of God waited for Long periods of time before God answered them. Abraham had to wait 25 years between the time God first spoke to him and the time the promise was realized. The children of Israel were in Egypt for 400 years before God intervened with great glory and power so that he could get glory over Pharaoh and raise him up for that purpose that he might be glorified. The people of God waited many centuries before the Lord Jesus came, but He came. And what did He do? He delivered all of God's people in all ages from the power of sin and Satan. Was the the wait worth it? Ask Abraham. Ask the Egyptians who walked through the Red Sea. Or the, the Israelites who walked through the Red Sea. And we know, of course, that the wait was worth it when it came to the Lord Jesus. He is because God is faithful to His promises. And He will do it. What God, what idol of the nation has ever prophesied and it came to be? God says, I've done these things that you may know that I am the true and living God. No other God has done these things that prophesied dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of different prophecies and they all came true. "I, I prophesy before it comes true so you will know that I am the true and living God. He is the God that carries us. We don't carry Him. He gives us life. We don't give life to Him by cutting Him out and shaping Him into some kind of mold. And so out of that, He makes this desperate cry, "Oh Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Oh Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. We know in the Bible that if you want to get someone's attention, you you repeat it. Just in those words, holy, holy, holy. Here he repeats it three times. The house of Aaron, the house of Israel, and you who fear the Lord. Trust the Lord. He repeats it three times. That though you may be in very disconcerting circumstances, and maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you feel dead and empty. Maybe you feel your Christian life is going nowhere. Maybe you feel confused about this or that. And you feel like giving up. You feel like the, the world has uh, it, it done its worst on you. Maybe you feel the attraction of these idols in the world and that, that, that God is losing His attraction for you in your heart. But the psalmist lays out here in black and white terms the reasons why, and especially in the face of Jesus Christ, Why we ought to trust, trust, trust. At every turn, trust, hope, believe. Trust His Word. Is it not true? Has it not been proven again and again to be true? We sang this morning Psalm 130. My hope is in His Word. My hope is in His Word. It's been proven. He has prophesied and it has come true. We have put our trust in it. The worst of the worst. Have looked to the promises of the gospel and say, could I be saved? Could I know deliverance through these same promises? And so you have the worst that this world and society could throw up at us. And God, through His Word, has made new people. Changed gang leaders and drug addicts and prostitutes and idolaters and and murderers into beautiful men and women of God. He is able. He is able to do it. Trust in His Word. Trust in His grace. The Apostle Paul said, even when I was buffeted by Satan, on three occasions I went to God, but God said, my grace is enough for you. My grace is sufficient for you. We also trust in His providence where God has us in our, in our lives. And it's wonderful, it's important for you to remember the works of God in your own life. Say, look at what God did for me then. Look at how God has brought me from here to there and to here. And God's been so good to me. And, so I can, and even though I feel like I'm in a, a strange place right now, I know that God has me where I need to be. And I just need to trust in Him. I need to get back in His Word and hear the testimony of His people down through the ages and renew my trust and confidence in Him. We must also trust the ways in which God has given us to fight against our enemy. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. (laughs) They're not the ways of the world in terms of money and politics and who you know and all these sorts of things. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the tearing down of strongholds and everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We go back to the Word. We trust in God. And, and, and these words are, are full of so many things. We could, we could open them up in so many different directions. But these are the things that we must trust God in. His Word, His providence, His grace, His power. His power. His Spirit. He's not just giving them an empty word. Trust. They know what He means. And surely we know what He means tonight. He will bless. The Lord remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord. Again, He is is saying to all these three groups, trust, trust, trust. Now He is saying He will bless Bless, bless. Verses twelve and thirteen uh, uh, lists the, the consequences of what he has just said before in nine to eleven. Israel trusts God, and God blesses them. So after this time of 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 disorientation and difficulty. God will visit His people. And it's wonderful, in their time of exile, who does He send to them? Ezekiel and Daniel, who open up to the vista of the people of God that glorious picture of what He is not going to do for them only in the short term. As Jack was saying to us a few weeks ago, it's not just the the valley of the dry bones where all the bones come together and they stand up on their feet. It's not just the renewed nation of Israel coming back into the land of Israel after 70 years of captivity. But it's you and I. It's the nations. It's it's the ingathering of the the nations of the world. As we come to faith. And this is where God is going to add to His people. May the Lord give you increase. You and your children. That's what He says there, what He means by uh, in Isaiah 54. After 53, when he's talking about the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus, how does Psalm uh, Isaiah 54 start? Sing, O barren one, you who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. This is the nation of Israel. You who had not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who was married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and straighten your stakes. For you will spread abroad, to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations, and will people the desolate cities." And in a kind of a microcosm, this is what the psalmist is getting at here. Keep trusting. Keep hoping. For the Lord has determined an amazing destiny for his church, for his people. That, they, that the people of God will be more than the sand of the seashore, more than the stars in the heaven that can be numbered. John says, I saw that great multitude which no man could number from all nations, tribes, kindreds, and tongues standing before the Lamb. And so God will bless us. He will help us. And so in Christ, we are to be fruitful. Jesus said in John 15, as He talked about the vine, in John 15 and verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name that he may give to you. These things I command you, that you love one another. And so, friends, the, the, the psalmist here gives us a wonderful road map for living in the twenty first century. What it means to live surrounded by the idols of men's thinking. Where does the idol of modern thinking get mankind as they put such pride in their progressive notions that a man can be a woman and a woman can be a man? Insanity. Absolute insanity. And we stand back and we say, that's, what, that's where their idolatry is taking them. They're destroying themselves by worshiping at the altar of progressivism. And the more and the quicker they turn away from God, they're not becoming wiser, they're not becoming more enlightened, but their God is destroying them. And we're able to look at that and say, now look, in contrast to that, the beauty of what God has given, the beauty of God's creation, God's order. And as we see the two things in stark contrast, we come back to God with a greater passion and a greater determination to serve Him and to love Him and to affirm that He is the true and the living God and that only He can save. Well, let us pray. O Lord, our God, we give thanks for Your Word.